What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey guys, help Smart People Podcast stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered into an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com smart. That's www.podsurvey.com smart to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stem. And I'm John Rojas. Another great episode for you today. Fantastic guest, Dr. Susanna Walters. Her work is centered on questions of gender, sexuality, family, and popular culture. But the majority of our episode today is dedicated to her newest book, which is called The Tolerance Trap. How God, Genes, and Good Intentions Are Sabotaging Gay Equality. An interesting topic that we haven't covered yet, and as soon as we were done, John and I were both like, man, that was fantastic. Yeah, it was such a great episode. really does open your eyes and make you look at things a little bit differently, maybe in a way that you haven't looked at it before. And if anything, that's what we strive to do here on Smart People Podcast. So we're going to keep this one short and turn it over to Susanna here in a second. Make sure you check us out at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Thanks so much, by the way, for your fantastic reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. John uh, was really a fan of one the other day that we saw about just how much somebody was enjoying the show. 
Yeah, somebody listened to 120 episodes in three weeks, which is awesome. It's crazy. I've been listening to a lot of our episodes for like the third and fourth time. It's about time you've listened to them. <laughs> so anyways, guys, reach out. Email us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and go to the website. You can check out our post. As we mentioned, we have Dr. Susanna Walters. She is the professor of sociology and director of women's gender and sexuality studies program at Northeastern University. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Dr. Walters. Well, Susanna, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And Really excited to have you on because I have to admit, homosexuality in general is not something that we have covered on the podcast. 150 or so episodes in, when we've really tried to take a a wide range of just what it is to be human. And I think that goes to speaking to kind of what you write about. It's like it's it's not where we want it to be. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point, and and you should be ashamed of yourself. I know it. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think that we tend to believe, particularly since there's been so much success with gay marriage rights, we tend to believe that we're almost there, that that the, the, the revolution for gay rights, the inclusion of gay people in American culture in all its facets is really... Uh, pretty pretty close. And part of why I wrote this book was, a, I guess I would see it as somewhat of a cautionary tale. And, and your example that you haven't done a podcast yet that covered any issues around gay rights speaks to that. And, it, and, and this is what it is, a cautionary tale to say, well, we're not almost there. Mm. And we're a long way off. And, and in fact, to the extent that we believe we're almost there and that the, the battle is won, we actually undercut the ability to uh, to really embrace this discussion with more complexity, with more depth, and, and to reach a goal of full inclusion for gays and lesbians in all areas of American life. Well, I'm glad we started there because as I was kind of reading about your book and reading some articles you've written, one of my thoughts was, well, I get that we might not almost be there, but we've definitely made a lot of progress, right? And I think what you're clarifying is we have made some progress, but we're not anywhere close to we can't just uh, declare a victory and say, look how evolved we are. Absolutely. Look, I would be the last person to deny the very real changes that have occurred in the past 15, 20 years or so. Uh, things are undoubtedly better. Believe me, I would rather be a young person coming out into this world than than the world that I grew up in. Um, But I think three points need to be made here in relation to to that. One is that things are simply not better enough. They're not better (laughs) enough. We still have disproportionate numbers of gay youth on the streets and homelessness. We still don't have, uh, can't seem to pass an Employment Non-Discrimination Act. We still only have a handful of openly gay politicians and national leaders. So on the one hand, things are just not better enough. Secondly, I think these gains for example, out gay celebrities, gay marriage, military inclusion, should not be seen as the end of the struggle for full inclusion. In other words, gay marriage is not synonymous with gay rights. And I think that's part of what the problem has been in recent years is that that's come, one issue has come to seem, to stand in for all the panoply of issues and rights that gay people have been working for for years. And third, and this is, of course, the deeper part of my book, 
the framing of gay rights around issues of tolerance and acceptance. I argue that this forestalls addressing deeper and more challenging questions posed by real inclusion, by deep inclusion. Ah, that's really, actually, that's really an interesting point. Actually, I want to dive into that stuff in a minute, but I'd like to, just for those listening who aren't aware of your work and your writing, pause for a minute and learn a little bit more about you, kind of give us your background and then all the things you're doing right now, including this book, but, you know, the other ways you uh, you kind of dive into this topic. Absolutely. Well, I am a professor of sociology and the director of women's gender and sexuality studies at Northeastern University, actually fairly new there. I taught uh, for years at Indiana University in Bloomington and before that at Georgetown University in Washington. Uh, I do work on gender, sexuality, popular culture, um, feminist theory, gay and lesbian studies. And uh, my last book, Uh, was called All the Rage, The Story of Gay Visibility in America. And in this, in many ways, this book is, is in some ways a follow-up, but it's, um, it's more about the state of political rights and, and civil inclusion than it is about popular culture per se. Although I do talk about, uh, some issues around popular culture in the book. It really is, um, a sort of taking the pulse of where we are now. Uh, in, in terms of thinking of gay rights and gay identity and gay inclusion. Um, so that's broadly my background, uh, a, a sociologist and a cultural theorist and feminist theorist who has, has worked for years in these areas. Great. No, thank you for that. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you, because this is a it's a unique niche topic. You know, it's something you really kind of dove into just sociology in general. I find so fascinating as you were kind of growing up, going through your own education, planning your future. One of the things we try to we try to touch on in most episodes is kind of doing something you're passionate about regardless of if you see exactly where it's going to go. And I feel like this specific subject, I mean, did you know where you were going to make your living or how did that come to be? <laughs> you know, I mean, really? No, I mean, my, my first book actually was about mothers and daughters in mm. popular culture. So it was really far afield from this. Um, you know, I have been openly gay. I've been out since I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. So for, for a long time, mm-hmm. back, back in the Stone Ages. Um, and, you know, the world I came out in was a very, very different world. Um, but, you know, I have been working and thinking about these issues both from a personal and a more sociological perspective for a long time. And, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't actually set out to write a book like this, actually. I, I think I set out to write a book that was much more a, a kind of follow-up on my last book. But one of the things that, that happened is that one, certainly the whole gay marriage movement happened, but also I sort of began to hear this drumbeat um, of, you know, oh, we've, almost, we've made it. The movement's over. You know, everyone pack up and go home. Hmm. We, we, you know, we've gained full equality. And so the book became much more of a response to that than I had initially intended uh, because I saw that as spreading throughout our society, that idea that, you know, victory is at hand. And while I, I don't want to be a, a depressive downer here, I did want to say, hold on a minute, folks. Um, let's really look at the, at the complexity of our current moment and approach it with a little more uh, subtlety, and, and um, that will get us 
to, a, to gain a greater sense of inclusion than if we just celebrate too early. Sure. And now going back to the thing you mentioned about tolerance and acceptance and that being a hindrance, I wanted to touch on that as how I interpret it and see if, if we were on the same page and if not, kind of have you dive in. So did you look at it as looking at gay rights as something to tolerate and accept is really in and of itself pointing out that it's not normal or it's abnormal or it's something to highlight? Is that kind of a, the take on it? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Look, we tolerate things that we don't really like. I mean, that's the nature of toleration. So they say, oh, you know, I, I had, you know, I was in a boring meeting and I tolerated it. Mm. You know, I went to a, you know, a terrible movie, but I tolerated it because my partner wanted to see it. We don't talk about tolerating wonderful sex or tolerating the great book we read or tolerating a democratic society. So the notion of tolerance already has built into it um, a kind of tepid acceptance of that which you do not really embrace. And so one of the things I argue throughout the book is that tolerance is too low a bar for us to, uh, you know, for, for a, a civil rights movement to have. Look, no movement worth its salt has banked on tolerance as the route to social change. I mean, the civil rights movement didn't say, look, please tolerate my darker skin color. You know, women don't say, you know, oh, tolerate that we're a different gender and, and, and therefore we'll, you know, get rights. We talk about the celebration of differences and the way in which differences can actually transform all of us in positive ways. So tolerance, it's, it's, always, it's curious to me how much the language of tolerance and the language also of acceptance is something that is framing the way we think about gay rights. And it really hasn't for other, other social groups and minority groups. And I think we need to push back at that. Why do you think it was originally framed that way? Was that just to kind of tiptoe, you know, like kind of touch our toes in that water to get people to start accepting it? I mean, why do you think that it was looked at completely different than what you mentioned with civil rights and then women's rights? That is such a great question, and I wish I had a definitive answer. Believe me, I've been mulling this over for a long time now. I think there are a lot of reasons. I'm not quite sure why tolerance in and of itself has become the framework uh, for gay rights. It certainly, well, Let me just say it certainly wasn't always the case. It's a very new framework. Mm. I mean, when you talk about the great Stonewall Rebellion in the 60s and, and the movement even before and right after that, um, tolerance and acceptance wasn't anything that was on the, you know, the, the mindset of those activists. It really was about social change, about transforming how we think about gender and how we think about sexuality. So tolerance wasn't part of the framework. It's, it's really quite new. And I think some of it is linked to the way in which gay marriage, for example, has come to the fore as the, the strategic uh, moment uh, for the gay rights movement and the issue that we focus on. And I think people say, well, you know, if we can just, you know, tolerate this, just include this uh, so that gays are seen as just the same as, as heterosexuals, then we can get to a broader sense of inclusion. So I think that's part of the reason um, that tolerance has come to, to define some of how we think about gay rights. But boy, it is something we've got to push back against. I mean, no real social change can happen when you're hitching it to tolerance. 
I've never thought about it like that before. And I know there's probably a lot of people out there that haven't. And even regarding gay rights, but other things that you just consider tolerating it. Perhaps it's time to change that mindset. And I, what kind of drove you to, I mean, that is a very unique or insightful thing. How'd you discover that? Thank you. Well, I mean, I guess part of it was I kept hearing that language of tolerance, tolerance, acceptance. And I kept thinking, mm. for one, as a gay person, I mm -hmm. kept thinking, huh, who are you to tolerate right. me? Okay. That, yeah, <laughs> no, that makes sense. You know, there was part of it that just was a reaction to that. That said, what does it mean that one group says they're going to tolerate another? And then pushing even further with it, you think, well, you know, uh, tolerance can always be taken away because it's always someone else who is seen as doing the tolerating. So I'm not, no one asks, oh, are, are gay people tolerating straight people? You know, I hope there's some good gay tolerance for those straight people, you know? So the fact that we don't ask that seems to say to me a lot about what the language of tolerance is. And I, you know, I really prefer, uh, you know, and do draw on the civil rights movement and the women's movement here, a much more robust uh, language of inclusion, of integration. I think that kind of language is just offers so much more to us in terms of imagining a, a society in which there is an embrace of difference and which all people, straight and gay, can learn from each other about different ways of doing gender and imagining sexuality and family and so on. Tolerance just seems so weak to talk about um, social change. I agree. And it's really, you know, it's really a human rights thing. And the fact that it's 2014 and there are a lot of people that don't look at it that way just blows my mind on a daily basis. Yeah, I kind of agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book as well is that you know, I, I guess sometimes I'm a, ha a glass half empty sort of person. <laughs> I say, you know, okay, here it is, uh, you know, 2014, and everyone's declaring all this change for gay rights. I mean, for example, there was just all of this uh, brouhaha about these um, uh, sports celebrities coming out. Mm -hmm. You know, the first major league players, et cetera, to come out of the closet. Everyone says, isn't that a great sign of how much we've changed? Now, I look at it and I say, huh, one player, two players who embody all of the norm normative ways of thinking about maleness and masculinity and so on, and the press is falling over themselves saying, isn't the world changing? And I think, boy, that's one person. Actually, this is a sign of how far we haven't come, that we're actually making this a news issue. It, it will be a sign of how far we've come when that's not a news item at all. Sure. Yeah. And actually I was going to, I had that written down cause I wanted to mention it to you. Um, the first openly gay active football player, you know, recently came out. I think he's going into the draft right now or just, just yeah. was in the draft. I, I haven't right. followed up on it too much, but, and like you mentioned, not only was it a story, but I heard a lot of things. I mean, there were tweets and all this stuff, you know, all the way from completely um, understanding and all that to uh, to ignorant. And I even I I mean, I look, I know it shouldn't be judged, but, 
you know, I think, well, this sport is full of these warriors, if you will, and they get in the lock. I was an athlete. Like, I know what it's like in the locker room. And I wonder, man, that's going to affect the dynamic. No matter no matter what utopia we want to live in, that just is a fact. And I, I don't know what to think about it. Well, I think that uh, that, again, is a sign that, you know, uh, that that sexual orientation, sexual preference and sexual object choice in that way still, you know, is seen as something that's disruptive or that matters in that way. I mean, you say, you know, that it will affect the locker room. Well, you know, people who are in the locker room with all kinds of differences, with religious differences, with political differences, with familial differences, with uh, regional differences. But we think it's the it, it's how they you know how they have sex and how they love that matters more mm-hmm. than all those other things, um, you know. So again, to me, that's more you know evidence that we've still got a long way to go in making this matter less, sure. in making people's sexuality, you know, be whatever it, you know a part of them like a like a lot of other things are a part of them. Right, and and talking to you. One of the things that's most fascinating is I kind of understand, you know, looking at the question I asked about tolerance and the way I'm kind of viewing a locker room. I mean, I fall into that. I don't know if I want to call myself kind of ignorant, but it's like I didn't have a gay friend until about two years ago. And I don't feel like I went out of my way to, you know, I I don't feel like I had these judgments. Maybe it was just the crowd I hung out with or I I don't know. Um, And I say that just to be, you know, this is something that. I don't have this prejudice at all, but I don't understand it very well. And I say that because I want to, but it's, I don't know. I I guess I would have to go out of my way to, to learn more and understand more. And I, I feel like talking to you is maybe that, that step and I'm trying to make the transition. Well, I hope it, I hope it's part of that. Look, I think, I think that one of the, I think you're hitting on something that's very important, which is that you know, the issue here isn't just about tolerance and acceptance. It is about changes in consciousness. And, you know, one of the things that that has to happen to create a truly inclusive and integrated society, whether it's around racial differences, gender differences, sexual differences, religious differences, is not just about tolerance and acceptance, but about deep knowing of other people and other ways of life. Um, and you can't get that just through tolerance because that's an easy out. Say, so, okay, you know, here's someone who's just different from me and they're so deeply different and I can't even begin to know who they are. And I'm just going to, you know, I'll accept them as long as they don't get in my face. You know, mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. bother me. I'll accept them. That keeps fences still up. And, it, you know, and in fact, when you say you, you haven't had any gay friends until recently, I mean, one of the you know interesting uh, points of uh, of data we have is that certainly the more people actually have gay friends, gay family members, uh, gay coworkers, the more they're not just tolerant, but the more they actually are thinking about sexuality and sexual difference in new ways. So part of what's important is you know is to push back against kinds of segregations that don't allow people to know different kinds of people. Look, you can say the same thing about racial integration. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons the argument, the civil rights argument was so focused on integration as a mode was that it believed, you know, the belief was that's one of the ways you counter prejudice, even prejudice that is ingrained and not even experienced as prejudice is that people actually need to know, live with, love 
people that are different from them. It's very simple, you know, and until you begin to do that and really begin to understand those differences as meaningful, not just superficial, but as challenging and meaningful, you can't actually have a sort of a really integrated society. Yep. It's such a great point. And I keep going back to, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I've watched uh, Game of Thrones and I've watched all these uh, historical shows, movies, all that. And it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I definitely don't know. Okay. This is just, if you want to talk about popular culture, but it seems like they were much more tolerant of all types of sexuality back, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. Is that true? And if so, when did that change come about? That's a huge question. I can say this, that, look, people have always had varieties of sexual experiences and desires. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the, the way in which we understand sexual identity now, that there's this opposition that you're either hetero or homo, and you either, you know, maybe bisexual, but you either, you know, that desire, sexual desires are sort of fixed on our bodies and in our identities in very oppositional sorts of ways. That's a very modern phenomenon. The terms heterosexual and homosexual, you know, are, are really pretty new um, and developed in the 19th century. Uh, so it's not, you know, the ideas, these ideas that we've come to think of as natural, that one is either this or the other, and it moves in these binary ways, you know, are, are, are fairly new uh, and have not always been with us. And there have been different ways of, of thinking about sexuality and the relationship between sexuality and social world and so on. And there remain different ways around the world. So, you know, one of the reasons that's important for us to know is that if you understand the way we think about sexuality as being socially produced through and, and differing over time, we know then that we can produce it differently, actively, all of us, that we don't have to have these oppositional ways of imagining it. I wanted to dive quickly into your book, The Tolerance Trap, because when I looked at the subtitle, it's how God, genes, and good intentions are sabotaging gay equality. And I saw how God, I'm like, okay, I get that with religion, good intentions, what we've just been talking about now, where people are saying, hey, we've won the fight, that type of thing. But genes, I was kind of surprised. Can you explain a little bit? How yes, genes absolutely. I mean, that has become, actually, that became a huge part of the book because it, became, it was such a, uh, it's such a dominant way of thinking about gay identity. This search for the gay, uh, gay gene or a notion of it, you know, that, that people are born this way is a very, um, again, a very new idea and, and unfortunately, in my mind, a very dangerous idea. And I think it's linked historically with, for example, the development of the Human Genome Project and the associated rise in neuroscience and neuropsychology and the move uh, to frame everything from shyness to food taste to falling in love in biological and often genetic and narrowly determinist ways. And you know, the idea that people should get their rights because they can't help themselves is a pretty weak notion to base mm. civil rights on. And so the, the, the idea that, that born this way, and let me back up a minute, the genetic arguments, I would say, are both bad science. I mean, I think it's just very shoddy science. But even more importantly, it's the wrong question for us to ask. Sexuality is a messy and complicated and fluid thing. And the idea that we can think that one's sexual desire is somehow imprinted 
in a primordial way on your genes and your endocrine system and your hypothalamus in some way is ludicrous. People change their sexual desires over a life course. Even what we define as a sexual identity changes historically. Um, so it's a ludicrous idea that we can uh, sort of define someone's sexuality in such a narrow way. But even more dangerously, the idea that in order to get rights, you must argue that, that gayness is imprinted in some biological way is a very dangerous idea. Uh, I mean, most of the gay, gay movement has spent most of its history working to demedicalize uh, sexuality and to understand sexuality as, as complicated, as fluid, as uh, about choice sometimes, as about all kinds of things. So the biological arguments I found to be really dangerous and really hard to push back against. Yeah, I can imagine it being tough to push back against because of just, I think we're at the stage where humans in general try to define everything in the scientific way. I, I work a lot with food, so it's like breaking food down into its smallest components, yet the more we do it, the more we realize we don't understand. And right. so it's it's a slippery slope because if you do that with something like sexuality, then you 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 know you indoctrinate the people in this certain mindset, and then oh never mind we just realized we screwed that up, and you know it, it's a continual learning curve. Absolutely, and also look the very fact that no one's asking you know ooh where how do we find out what's the straight gene, you know mm -hmm. I mean that there's no sign you know the, the the our national institute of health they're not putting any money into searching for the origins of heterosexuality and heterosexual desire. Why? Because that's naturalized. That's seen as the norm. So part of this whole, you know, part, part of the, the search for the gay gene is, again, part of that same discourse of tolerance. It's seen as, you know, what we started talking, out, started talking about. It's seen as let's find that which is not normal. Let's define that, you know, let's find the origins, the causes of that which is not normal. Now, you know, there's also the danger, oh, let's find that so we can cure it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a disease. It's a disease model of sexuality. Again, I would say when they start looking for, let's, you know, let's find the cause. You know, what is causing that curious thing called heterosexuality? Uh, you know, then we'll begin to know that it's a little more complicated. But it is something I think we've got to really push back against. Look, even if you believe that there might be some biological origins uh, or some causation around sexual desire, gay or straight or bisexual, any kind of sexual desire, the idea that that has anything to do with human rights is crazy. Yeah. Right? And all you have to do is look at the Holocaust and look at slavery mm -hmm. to see how biological arguments for, for or against rights have been used. And that's a that's a really great argument, especially the last thing that you mentioned with, uh, you know, slavery and, and what you said about the Holocaust, because I can hear our listeners asking this question. And I think it's because oftentimes we're in tune and I have this question and I, I hesitate to ask it again for fear of sounding kind of dumb sometimes. But it's the truth is like when I think about biological basis or when I think about when people say normal or, you know. It seems to me, okay, the human species or any species, the main goal, one of the main goals is to procreate, which can happen through a gay relationship. And I'm, I'm sure you've covered this before. So I'd like to know kind of, uh, because I mean, if you, if you imagine that, right, if, if everybody was gay, obviously it would, we would die off, I guess. 
what what are your thoughts behind that well i mean i'm not a, a you know an evolutionary biologist in that way i mean sure. i don't think that you know we are we are pre-programmed in that sense but i also say look the fact is gay people have children <laughs> mm-hmm. you, i mean there there are other ways we are we are living in an era um, in which there are many ways to to reproduce. So the idea, you know, the, the somehow the idea that gay people are not involved in that kind of family life is just actually empirically untrue. Um, you know, people have had all kinds of sexual practices and desires throughout history in a variety of different societies. So the the one thing, you know, Kinsey said it years years ago. The 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 one, you know, the one truism about sexuality is variety. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's variety is the norm. You know, that is the norm in the animal kingdom and in the in the human kingdom. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, that is that is the research that Kinsey showed, you know, years ago um, with fruit flies. Uh, and people have shown that with um, uh, when they're looking at, at the animal world, uh, the variety of ways in which animals. Um, mate and and have sexuality in the variety of ways in which humans have sexuality, uh, including uh, forms of reproduction that aren't um, heterosexual biological forms of reproduction. Yeah, and I, I know you have a question, John. So I'm going to let you ask this. I just have to state this because I, I thought about it when you mentioned animal kingdom and variety and just abnormal behaviors that might not seem biologically sound. I think about the praying mantis that bites the head off of. Her, the the male the female actually kills the male right after sex if you will and i'm like that can't that's the least efficient way of procreating but it happens so it happens and we wouldn't want to say oh that's the rule so everyone should bite the head off of that, you know? right. i mean yeah. we don't please we, don't bite my head off <laughs> we will, i swear we're not gonna bite your head off i mean you know the idea that that somehow you know there is a, a singular way and that we mimic it, and that we should mimic it in certain ways. I mean, look, we live in a we live in a social world. We're social beings. Um, we are not, um, you know, simply uh, put here to to um, follow some uh, plan of of evolutionary, uh, you know, biologists. And going back to the procreating thing, I'd like to think that if the world was just gay people, that they would, to use this, I guess, bad word now, they would tolerate straight sex or something Mm. to produce children for each other or to do all that kind of stuff. So I think the world would find a way. Definitely. Yeah. I don't think population's a real problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not, not right now. Definitely not right now. I mean, that's really not, I mean, that argument always is sort of like, really? Because, you know, gosh, I mean, you know, I mean, they use it. It's interesting. It it comes up, you know, in the anti-gay marriage arguments, you'll see some of the um, the you know the judges and lawyers saying, well, you know, marriage is for uh, is for procreation, so gay people can't get married. Well, there are two answers to that. One, of course, gay people do procreate. We are parents. I am one. But the other is, you know, are you really going to make that a criteria? Then everyone over menopause can't get married. You know, <laughs> then, then that 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 seventy year old couple who met in the uh, in the retirement they can't get married. I mean, it's the most ridiculous argument. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to go back real quick to the genes thing because I had a quick question for you because you know they are trying to look at what what is the scientific origin for the gene for homosexuality. Has there been any other type of research like that where 
okay, why do these people like country music? Why do these people like rock and roll? Why do these people like cilantro? Why don't these people? I mean, have you seen research on that same thing? Or is this really just kind of like a scapegoat thing for trying to wrap our heads around homosexuality? It's a good question. Look, I do think, particularly since the development of the Human Genome Project, that there has been a rise in looking for determinants of all kinds of behavior. Um, But I guess I would say it's also very interesting. So there have been of shyness, or do you like cilantro, or do you like to dance this way, or this kind of music. But it is true that when it comes to sexuality, most of the research is the gene for this thing we are calling homosexuality. Hmm. Not, Not heterosexuality, not fluidity, not, you know. So, so first of all, it's presuming we know what this thing is and it's a singular thing and we can find something that determines it. And we're asking the question about that. To me, it's, just an un, it's both a bad science question and it's uninteresting. I'm not interested in what, you know, the, the causation of your sexuality or my sexuality <laughs> and how it changed has no relationship to getting equal rights. Right. You know, why, why someone has this skin color, why someone has that, why someone's left-handed or right, who cares, you know, in, in terms of accessing rights. I would also say when it comes to sexuality, I just have to say again, it has such a narrow view of sexuality, the idea that it's singular. People do change their sexual desires over their life course. Um, they change the who they like, what they like, what kinds of practices they like. So the idea that we can sort of hone in on a singularity of sexual desire, it is this or this, it is directed to this kind of person or that, flies in the face of most people's experiences. Yeah, and there's one thing that actually scares me about the fact that things do change, like you can change your sexuality, because there is a certain group of people that will jump all over that saying, we can change these people back to normal and I, I don't know. I just I think that's completely ignorant. And it, it really does scare me. Well, and you're absolutely right. And the response to that of the, 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 the what you're referring to is what the so-called reparative therapy, movement, yeah, yeah. which is this idea that you can. The, the problem was with that is not just that it's wrong, that people should, you know, can't change. The problem with that is why should they? Right. right. So what we need to say back to those people is it's not just that this is bad science and bad therapy. It's that it's unethical. Why do we want people? Because again, you're presuming that there's something bad there. That's the notion of tolerance. You know, why would you change that? It's, you know, it's like saying, you know, there's something wrong with it. It needs to be changed rather than, you know, so it's the wrong question again to be asking. I agree. Well, Susanna, this was awesome. Uh, It was very enlightening and it was a a huge highlight of just why we do this podcast and open my eyes, open John's eyes, hopefully open our listeners eyes and just just learn a little something, step into the world that we inhabit and uh, to to think about these things. So, again, we you know, we talked about your book, The Tolerance Trap, which is fantastic. And I was wondering if there's somewhere else that people can go and connect with you, learn about what you do, read your writing, all those types of things. Absolutely. There is my website for the book, thetolerancetrap.com. And uh, it, uh, I also have a blog on the on the website connected to the website. So that would be the best place for people to go. 
Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Susanna Walters. Again, her book just came out. It's called The Tolerance Trap, How God, Genes, and Good Intentions Are Sabotaging Gay Equality. Check it out. It is a fantastic read. And guys, uh, do you have Twitter? Are you on Twitter, everyone? I have Twitter. I know you do, because we'd like to hear from you at Smart People Pod. Uh, John is on a quest to go over a thousand. It's right a away. slow quest right now. Well, it's not that slow, but it's we, climbing. We yeah, and the thing is, what we really like, and people did this a lot recently, is if you say, "Kind of, hey guys, I just listened to episode blank," you know, include the guest and then put at Smart People Pod again. Only do that if you like it. I'm not saying whatever, but it's something you can do on your phone. Hopefully, you're not driving. Maybe you're at a stoplight. And it lets the guests know, and it helps us get better guests and really continue this show. It just it brings the whole community aspect in. And a lot of the guests actually get involved. I know the Lyft app and Tony Stubblebine were having conversations with a lot of the people that were commenting saying, hey, the Lyft app's awesome. I heard about it on your show. And then Tony reached out to them and was asking, what are you doing? What habits are you trying to create? All those things. And he's making cool conversation with people. That's a great point. If you want to talk to some of the guests we have on, that's probably one of the best ways to do so. So we're just bringing you into the fold. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to tune in next week. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. SmartPeoplePodcast.com. See you later.